0: Hello, I'm Anna Elliott and this is Blendle Handpicked. If you give me five minutes of your time, I'll give you three stories that stood out above all the rest this week. My first story today is a real must-read, the likes of which don't come around that often. It's from Austin Ramsey and Chris Buckley in the New York Times, and it reveals the existence of leaked documents from the Chinese Communist Party that expose the ruthless plotting behind China's detention of one million Muslims in prison camps. The Times obtained 403 pages of government papers from an official within the Chinese government that provide evidence of a merciless conspiracy to deprive the Uyghur ethnic group of their freedom. And the leak itself also suggests that the government isn't as united behind the policy as we may have thought. The Times is calling this the most significant leak from inside the Chinese government in decades, and it's not hard to see why. It paints a clear picture of President Xi Jinping's involvement. It exposes the hidden machinery behind the detentions. And it also includes a grotesque sort of FAQs sheet that provides the scripted answers government representatives must give when family members of the detained Muslims ask questions like, why can't they come home? It also exposes the mechanics of a sort of point system that was also communicated to those family members. If they misbehaved, complained or failed to tow the party line, their relatives would stay imprisoned for longer. Perhaps one of the most interesting moments in this piece is its discussion of dissent within the party itself. One particular official, in a crisis of conscience, freed thousands of Uyghurs from camps under his control, and his subsequent prosecution and downfall was spread around the party as a warning to other would-be dissenters. No hesitation would be tolerated. Other countries suspected that this brutal internment campaign targeted people for their religion, and now we have the clearest evidence anybody has seen so far that that's true. This is the best information you'll find anywhere on this massive story, and I'd highly recommend sitting down for 20 minutes to read it. It's from Sunday's New York Times, and the link is in the show notes. Next up today is a piece from economist Tim Harford in FT Weekend on what makes a perfect scam and why we fall for them. It's a delightful read that brings up fascinating examples of audacious cons from the past and breaks them down into their moving parts to show precisely how they worked. He says, Faced with the right con, we are all vulnerable. And it's vitally important that we understand how these tricks of the past worked so that we don't fall for worse ones in the future. The crux of the story is a sort of myth-busting exercise. We sometimes think the reason we fall for scams is that we are easily trusting of people who appear to be authority figures, like someone in army uniform or a self-professed doctor in a lab coat. But Harford contends that that's not the real story at all. Sure, appearances matter, humans are superficial creatures, and Harford's aside about how the height of presidential candidates affects their electability is fascinating, but that's just the front door of the con. After that comes a stickier situation. We gradually go along with small increments of the scam, step by step, until we find ourselves caught in a tangled web. Stopping and turning back would amount to an admission of our own awful mistake in going along with the step before. As Harford says, we become complicit. Breaking free becomes all but impossible. This is a strange and interesting point. We often think of people who have fallen for scams as passive, unfortunate victims, but that may not be the case at all. Maybe they just really don't want to admit they were wrong. There's a lot more to this 14 minute piece, including some highly entertaining examples of historical scams, and it's from Thursday's FT Weekend. Last up today, I've got a great piece from Anne Turgerson in the Wall Street Journal about what science tells us about how we can prevent dementia. Ferguson pulls together recent studies to show that you have more control over your cognitive health than you might think. At the moment, the answer isn't medication. It's lifestyle changes that should ideally occur as early as possible to minimize your risk of developing the degenerative disease. In fact, a recent report in the medical journal The Lancet showed that around 35% of dementia cases could be prevented if certain steps were taken earlier to change the patient's lifestyle. And even those genetically predisposed to the disease can improve their chances. It's all about adopting a package of behaviours long before symptoms occur, but it's never too late to start. And Turgeson goes on to walk us through the main areas where we can have a real effect on how our brain health develops. From blood pressure control to exercise to sleep, this piece explains the science behind why each factor affects our chances of developing dementia. Sleeping well may decrease deposits of proteins in the brain that scientists have linked with a disease. Undertaking more mentally stimulating tasks can promote the growth of new neurons. And eating more berries and leafy green vegetables could further protect your brain health. That's just a taster of the behavioural factors out there, and the more you adopt, the better your chances are of preventing dementia. Check out the full 10-minute piece in Monday's Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining me for this week's top stories. Check out the show notes for the links to the articles. And if you want to read more, you can go to blendle.com and subscribe to the Daily Digest newsletter, which we send out at 8am Eastern. If you want to get in touch with your thoughts on the show, you can email me at editorial at and you can follow us on Twitter at blendle. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week.